Welcome back to Disturbing Interest, everyone. I am Regina King, your evil queen, and sitting in her own beautiful house is my ever-loving partner. Hello, I'm Lynn, your docent of darkness. So uh, we've been gone a little bit longer than normal because my audio equipment decided that it just did not want to work with my computer anymore. And so I had to figure that out. But um, we're good now. We're back. Hey, thanks for sticking with us, those of you who did. And please remember, spread the disturbing word. Tell a friend. We are here for you. Just sometimes we disappear because of audio, apparently. Sometimes so, we have technical difficulties. Yeah, but you know that monkey with the wrench that's totally me right now. I thought you had a gremlin on the wing of your, of your computer. <laughs> You're all William Shatner like, no! inside the plane was that William Shatner I thought that was John Cleese no that's William Shatner was inside in the in the Twilight Zone episode oh yeah it was totally 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 Billy the Shat he was in oh, there I'm I'm thinking of the movie not the episode but that wasn't John Cleese either that was um oh John God. Lithgow yes John Lithgow that's, was it John yeah, you were halfway there I think it was well, I, I don't remember this up I have to look this up okay it wasn't John Goodman I know no. that it wasn't John Belushi it wasn't Dirty John. It wasn't Prince John from Robin Hood, the Disney version. Was he a lion? Was he? He was a, yeah, he was like a, like a, but like sort of a not rough, manly rough lion. He was like a slithery lion. So I think. Slithery? He was a slithery lion? Slithery. I don't know. He was all, he was the gay lion because the bad guys are always gay in Disney, which is why I'm like, the villains are the cool ones. Well, you know, Disney's got this thing going on recently where they're, like, casting their characters to be ambiguously gay, but they're not coming out to say it, which, I mean, come on, Disney, just come out and say it. Yeah. yeah first off, the new Mulan, which, by the way, happy Pride Month, everyone. Happy Pride Month. Oh, yeah, happy Month. Pride Month, y'all. Yeah. Uh, but the new Mulan, the male love interest, he... You know, why can't they just say that he is either bi or poly, that he is attracted to, or not, yeah, yes. Pansexual? Yes, I was saying, you know, he could be poly too. I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know, know his, his life. life. I hadn't seen the movie. I saw the animated one with the Eddie Murphy yelling dragon guy, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, it I is don't John know. Lithgow. It is John Lithgow. Ha <laughs> ha! Yes! Nice. I was right. How do I, you know what? I can't remember useful shit like how to do taxes or where I put my vaccine card, but I can remember it was John Lithgow in the movie uh, where, because the Twilight Zone, the movie, we did actually cover that way back because in a different segment of the movie, people actually died yeah. um, as a result of a helicopter stunt gone wrong. That's so right. we did cover that part, but um, yeah, Gremlin on the We've wing. We've come full circle. For those of you who have listened listened to us this long, thank you. And speaking of Gremlins on the wing, I have a movie to not suggest that you watch because it is terrible. It's one of those movies you just keep watching because you're like, maybe it'll get better, and then it never does. And that is Shadow in the Cloud. It does involve Gremlins on the wing and 
it seems like it will be really cool because it's got Chloe Grace Moretz as a mysterious female pilot during World War II who gets aboard this bomber and, and the crew is all suspicious and also like, it's a dame! And she has this mysterious case that, like, it's got documents in it, but it, it looks like a cat carrier. So you're like, is there a gremlin in there? But there is not. And then it gets incredibly stupid and incredibly bad. Some of my friends are like, oh, no, it was super fun. It was so wacky. And I was like, no, it was just stupid. So I'll leave it to you to decide. But, like, just know that this is not, I don't think this is a good movie. Just say no. But I you saw know. your post on this. And my response to that post was an answer. I, I see this one and raise you Willy's Wonderland. No, I, that I haven't seen because I looked at that and I thought, now Nicolas Cage versus the Chuck E. Cheese band. That sounds amazing. But then also Chuck E. Cheese band versus Nicolas Cage. That sounds like it's going to be terrible. So it's I, very hit or miss with Mr. Cage. You know? I, I have a personal hatred for Nick Cage. Don't come at oh, me. Okay. No, no. I, I feel you. Um, I... When you know what? When he's good, he's when he's good, he's Mandy. When he's bad, he's the Wicker Man. And more often than not, he's the Wicker Man. So yeah, yeah. I, I feel you. I feel you. Yeah, I would say watch this movie though, just because I don't need to be alone with this knowledge. <laughs> oh God, it's like Tusk or the Greasy Strangler. Now Tusk, please don't do this to yourself. Do not do this to yourself. The Greasy Strangler, definitely do this to yourself. It's worth it. Oh yeah, yeah, it's worth it. I greasy strangler. I will, I will support Kevin Smith and anything he does. I have seen Tusk no. more than once willingly. No. Uh-uh, no. Greasy strangler. Greasy strangler. Greasy strangler. Greasy strangler is for me, it is my personal version of the video from Ringu where <laughs> I have to get other people to watch it just because I need other people to have seen this thing so that they can just look at me in horror and we can share that between ourselves. That's Willie's Wonderland for oh, me. Watch okay. it, please. Okay. Please. I, please. I mean, I was thinking about going all in on that, but I, I, might, I might do that. Do it. Okay. Anyway. I do love a <laughs> shitty movie. I really do. I mean, I sat through Tammy and the T-Rex and I did not die. So clearly, <laughs> uh, you know, clearly I can take pain in, in this particular regard. I'm into to cinema BDS and BDSM. That's what I'm into. That's it. Yeah. That's it right there. All right. Well, um, Neko updates. Uh, Neko had to go to the vet yesterday because she has been limping a lot around the house. So all of you worried about our podcast. She is okay. She's just old and has arthritis and we have a lot of stairs in our house. And so she got some new pain meds and um, she will be taking fish oil additionally to help her out but the vet said she's a very healthy kitty and clearly very well taken care of and loved which made me feel good because I mean the cat is spoiled as hell she has two cat castles she has a feeding tray on every floor and a fresh water dish on every floor but still you know she is the opposite of neglected yeah, she also gets playtime every day, you know. So anyway, anyhow, so she's she's good, but she was uh, limping around. She still is. So uh, thoughts thoughts and prayers for Neko, everybody. Send those good vibes out there for our podcast. I hope and, she likes uh, the fish oil because mine were like, what the fuck is this shit? Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> well, and I assume they would like it because it's fish because cats like fish. fish. No. Mr. Jones was like, I'm not drinking. This is nasty. So we we 
have to kind of shoot it down his throat now, which is mm. nobody's favorite activity, but he puts up with it. Mm. Hopefully, Neko will be like, mm, a delicious fish sauce. Ooh, yeah. it's like Thai food. So yummy. I seriously doubt that. No. This cat, yeah. her treat is tuna, like fresh tuna. She's She is a spicky, uh, spicky? She is a picky bitch. Anyway, so and the story of Neko, you and I were talking about it, and you asked me if I had heard a very specific story, and I was like, no, but I need to know more, and you decided to share it with our listeners as well, so please, oh, I'm yes. the, dying. This is how, how we got our, our late cat, Sumi, who over the years, you know, nobody's cat, everybody's cat starts out with a name, but over time often the names morph into something weird. So Sumi True. was her original name, but she was just Boomer to everybody. And I don't know why Boomer, uh, but she was, <laughs> God bless her. She was one of God's special angels. That cat was dumb as a brick. Bless her heart. Dumb as a brick. Uh, and was obsessed with corn chips. Like she would literally slap the taco out of your face. If you were eating a crunchy, ta- any, like anything crunchy tortilla chip, she, she desired. And in fact, uh, when she passed away, we had her cremated and um, her ashes are in a little uh, sugar, like sugar bowl, sugar bowl, I guess, Aww. sugar jar that um, is shaped like corn. Because now she could be surrounded by corn her whole life. But she grew up surrounded by wheat because we got her from eastern Washington from a cult. Yes, a bona fide, honest to God, it's a cult. This is a cult cat. Uh, And it's the, the one time in her life where she used every bit of neuron power, and that's not a lot that she possesses, to do something smart and save her ass. So the story goes like this. So my... My late mother-in-law lived out in, and father-in-law lived out in eastern Washington, like pretty much almost Idaho, mm-hmm. in a tiny, horrible town called Pomeroy, Washington. Will's feeling on Pomeroy is uh, nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. And, you know, this is some weird wow. of Madison County shit, where it's basically a German post-war bride is brought out to this middle of nowhere. We actually think Will's dad was in kind of a witness protection program situation. I'm kind of joking, but I'm also kind of serious. uh, Because there is some weird, possibly mafia, possibly embezzlement, not that his dad embezzled, but that there was some of that around it. Like, anyway, there's some weird murky shit where essentially, you know, he moved them out to the middle of nowhere in Eastern Washington to run a general store which was never a thing that he had ever done before. He had never lived in Washington before. Basically, New Jersey and L.A. were, were this guy. New Jersey, there you go. That's all you need to know. Uh, wow. where, you know ran from New Jersey to here. And um, it. so anyway, they end up out in the middle of nowhere. Will is like a kid. Will is like, could we go back to Germany? But no, he would spend summers there, but he would be stuck otherwise in this tiny, frightening like children of the corn hills have eyes kind of town. yeah this place just makes i'm from pennsylvania and i was like oh god no thank you like for people that don't live out in the west if you're all if you're from the east coast or from a fairly populated area you know out there even if you're in a rural town if you drive 10 miles boom there's another little rural town etc etc you know until you get to a city which is usually not more than an hour or two away from you out here, once you cross the frickin' mountains, you just drive for hours and you don't see 
anything. You see like some tires by the side of the road, but just fields of of wheat and dirt just out for hours. And I think, Jesus, if our car ran off the road, no one would ever find my body. You know, like it creeped me out the first time I was out here. I was like, oh, no, thank you. But, you know, we would go a couple times a year because we have to go see Will's parents. And they, there's, again, as I'm saying, there's nothing to do out there. It's not like there is a tourist attraction, right? You can mm-hmm. go look at a dam. That's kind of neat. But that's about it. It's, it's, it's like wheat fields and cows. That's it. And Will's mom, who, God bless her, she was a strange and delightful and <laughs> confounding woman. She was like, if Zsa, Zsa Gabor had been plunked down in the middle of nowhere and given like a thrift store um to to play it like she was like green acres what's that it's very green it's like green acres but like on meth is what it was okay yeah and so she was like well we should go do something oh we could go over to the garden of holiness and i was like the what of what now the garden of holiness so everyone out there is super into jesus some flavor of jesus and the weirder the better right this is a place where there's not much to do, so you Jesus. And so <laughs> I'm like, sure, we'll go to the Garden of Holiness. Shit, I'm going to die. So we drive out to it, and it's literally like there's – it's a compound, right? There's these outbuildings and, like, kind of ramshackle in a group. And then and, – and did I mention this is like – and it's not quite the dead of winter. It's like March, I want to say, but it is not a time of year when things are in beautiful flower, right? It's okay. Or maybe November. I don't know. It's it's one of those sort of liminal. It's not quite winter, but it it's pretty it's a gray close. Month. It is a gray brown month, and so we get out there, and it's basically this giant kind of thicket of overgrown random plants, and I'm like, cool, we're at the Garden of Holiness. This is nice. But every few feet, there is like a stake in the ground with every a sign. Every few feet, there's a light that comes down. It's just like, oh. I, I wish that would have been cool. No, this just had stakes in the ground with signs on them that had a Bible verse on them. Okay, that makes sense if that's your jam. Garden but, holiness. All right. Right. But like, okay, if I if someone was like, make me a garden of holiness and put some Bible verses out in this bitch. I would probably go through the Bible and pick out things that were more like, I don't know, nature or, or garden related. Cause there's a lot of that in the Bible, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, or inspirational or meditative because I don't know, that's how my brain works. I'm not a millenarianist lunatic with a cult, um, yet. but these yet. are all there's basically for you yet. Oh <laughs> dude. But all of these verses are like, you will burn in hell. And I was like, holy shit, we are really going to die out here, right? And so I'm already a little on edge because, you know, I'm a heathen and they could smell that. (laughs) And, you know, I'm wandering around in the garden holy. It's like, okay. And I look over, I'm like, oh, there's a cat, which is pleasing to me because I like a cat. Oh, look, there's another cat. Oh, there's another cat. There's five cats. Do we die by cat? This is basically I'm going to die in the garden of holiness eaten by cats. We were surrounded by cats and they were kind of creeping up. And like they were a little bit wary and we're just surrounded by this group of possibly feral murder cats in the garden of holiness. And I think this is how I die. This is how I die. And you know, then, taken out by cats though. I, I can know, go out in worse ways. Circle of life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my own cat's probably going to kill me, but by tripping me down the stairs. Fair. So I'm, 
And then one of these little cat, like a little like teenage cat, like say maybe a five month old, real skinny little tuxedo cat, kind of wanders out from the pack, runs up to us, screaming, and just like bashing her head into our legs because this cat had seen our car and seen the license plate and thought, oh my God, these people are from the city. They could (laughs) save me. And just dancing around, around our legs. And I was like, oh, and then the children of the corn showed up. Oh God. Yes. Then the children arrived (laughs) just to like add a layer to this, this cake of terror these little kids kind of, and they were twins. Like, so oh, it was like God. Village of the Damned, right? Like, I think they were twins. They might be like Irish twins. I don't know. They were, you know, Palouse twins pop out and are like, hello. And I'm like, hey, kids, what's up? Uh, and they were like, do you want to see our goose and the other kittens? And I was like, I guess so. Sure. Why not? In for a penny. And so they take me over to a literal, like, dead, busted out car. It's just the shell of a car. And in the, like, the, um, where the engine used to be, inside the hood, there's, like, a nest of a mother cat with more kittens. And then the goose shows up. And oh then God. the goose sho- That's always, like, the fateful, and then the goose shows up. And this is the, that breed <laughs> that of... That is how any of my nightmares will start. Oh God. And then the goose shows up. And the up. goose shows up. Well, this goose is that breed of goose that looks like it has a tumor on its head. Oh, God, I hate those. They're so yeah. mean. And and it just wanders over, and I'm like, again, this is how I die. The, the children could charm the goose, and the goose left me alone. So I'm over there like, ha ha, look at the kids, look at the kittens, look at the goose. I'm going to die. And I look over, and meanwhile, this kitten is just like attacking Will. And I'm like, oh, what a sweet kitty. And the children are like, would you like to take her home? And I was like, oh, I guess we could. Uh, uh, what do you think, Will? And Will is like, no, we're not taking a kitten we're not we don't need a cat meanwhile this cat is like fine i this is the dude i really need to win over and scales his body she now did i mention it's damp and and she's covered in mud like muds (laughs) her way up his body uh and is just like clinging to his chest like save me you bastard get me out of here and I look at Will and I was like, shall we put her in the car? And Will is like, I guess we'll put her in the car. <laughs> so that's how we got our cat. We did escape. Nothing bad happened to us. And then I, I looked a little further into what's up with the Garden of Holiness. And holy shit, it literally is like a cult compound. Um, these guys went on to to form like this. They, they took over an old flour mill there and turned it into like a a christian eatery and bed and breakfast pay what you want to the cult um and it was one of will's mom's favorite places to go because literally there's nowhere else to go and she would go and hang out and eat terrible food at the cult and uh yeah that was uh that's wow eastern washington but anyway that is how we ended up with uh with our cat we saved it from a cult wow that is that was a wild ride. Thank you for that. Oh, and and for people that are like, oh my god, because I too am horrified by the idea of be fruitful and multiply and let your cats spawn thousands of cats. That you know, of course, just you know, cat has worms, is full of fleas when we get her yep. home. Like these are not well kept animals. Oh. Uh, luckily, a group of concerned citizens from the nearby town went out and did the trap neuter release, good, and or found homes for as many of the fairly unferal cats as they could so that that is no longer a problem 
Um, oh, good. So that's that's good positive. But yeah, that's so. Oh, and I have local cult news. In local cult news. So a, f- a couple friends of mine live in beautiful scenic Yelm, Washington. Oh, God. And yeah, oh, yeah. Yelm. For those that don't know Yelm, um, it's very, it's a city. It's a place, you know, it's, <laughs> it's certainly a place. And Yelm is the home of the Ramtha cult. So yeah, Ramtha, for those of you who don't aren't familiar with our homegrown weirdos, Ramtha is this thousand, several thousand year old entity that is channeled by a woman named Jay-Z Knight. And um, there's her, this... her album is dropping next week. <laughs> Yeah, we assume it will go platinum. Oh god. Yeah, so she's a she's an odd cod, but yeah, she Ramtha speaks through her and there's this big kind of cult compound with a large, very serious fuck you fence around it and you have to drive past it to get to where my friends live. So I have driven past the lovely cult of Ramtha a couple times and it's certainly something, but they report uh via the Facebook cuz they they listen to the local like you know, police blotter, because there is so much just magical redneck crime that happens in their their magical redneck city. Uh, And apparently some guy had like just gone cuckoo banana pants and had stolen a car and was driving it and rammed into, rammed into Ramtha, just hit the gate and then rammed into some police cars and then was apprehended. And I, I of course relayed this to Regina because I know that, you know, she loves a quality cult story. And she was like, I do. Well, why? What was that? Why do you know, do we have any more information? I said, this is it. This is all I know. They didn't release the guy's name or anything like that. But my theory, and I think the only one that makes plausible sense is that the uh, thousand year old entity that this guy in the car channels had beef with Ramtha from way back. And that's, that's why he did it. Yeah. This makes my... perfect sense to me. I'm here for that. That, that is, is the my only logical reason. So yeah, it's a, it's a cult crazy morning, but today nice. we have not got cults for you, but we have no. general insane idiot mayhem. And we are recording this at uh, just around noon. So lunchtime. So I don't feel bad about cracking open my delicious can of house wine white peach nectarine spritz that's gonna be classy yeah it actually looks like it might be a nice it's sweet bright white peach and refreshing nectarine notes and it will make sense it does tie into my story which we will get to after regina's crazy story but i'm gonna bust into this now because I feel like I'm going to need some wine to get through the next couple of uh, of stories we've got here. So, mm, you know, it's good. Yeah? Yeah, like it's not bad. I was worried it would be like icky, like peach Jolly Rancher vomit flavor. Mm-hmm. No, it's quite dry. It just has like actual aromatic notes of stone fruit. Ooh. Ooh. No, it, it's, um, it just, it literally just kind of tastes like um, if you made like white peach sangria but you didn't put any sugar or any of that in there it's guys this is kind of not this is refreshant this is oh. good so it's the house wine white peach nectarine spritz it's got a really cute can that has little happy peaches all over it and um yeah this is this is classy nice mm. awesome yeah. like if it was actually a nice summer day which we don't have here we but did I yesterday we did a little bit yeah but if, you know, it, this would be like, this is hammock wine. Guys, if you have a hammock, get you know, and it's nice out where you live, 
put out your hammock, get a can of this, get your book and just sit in your hammock with this. You will be very happy. <laughs> you know what? If you're living that hammock lifestyle, good for you. Be happy. Oh, I know. Find I your like joy. To. Yes. <laughs> this is good stuff. Good stuff. Nice. Nice. Well, it has nothing to do with my story today. Okay. And I'm just going to dive into this. And guys, it was a while ago that I wrote these notes. So this is going to be a pleasant surprise for all of us. Woohoo! Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools, the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing damn it's Shakespeare it's like Shakespeare knew my life <laughs> weird uh, side note I used to work for a Shakespeare company but yes I wasn't on the stage I was a box office manager but yes nice so I nice. dig Willie the shake I dig him I mean so many people do I mean he's known as the great bard himself his yep. words have echoed through the ages and explored the deep emotions of love betrayal well, really all of the emotions, just all of them. And there are a lot of different descriptives that you could select when you're thinking about Old Willie. But one of the most common is British, because Shakespeare is England's national poet, with the title of the Bard of Avalon, which is where he gets the nickname the Bard. With so many emotions conjured by his work, it's easy to see how people grow so personally attached to it and in turn to him. In fact, you could even consider some possessive. I mean, if you look at it through a modern lens of today, it's kind of the same personal connection that fandoms have. For example, though the author shall now forever be known as she who will not be named, I tote Slytherin house clothing and colors because that's my house and I'm proud of that personal connection. I am working on a full leg tattoo that is dedicated to my fandoms. Like, I'm drawing it out. And I took that hike up Mount Doom with Frodo. I counted pencils in the closet with Katniss when she was having her breakdown. And I'm still waiting for the doctor. I get it. And I have to try to keep that perspective in mind while telling this story. Because, dear friends... This whole thing is just one giant hot mess of a shit show. Because today, I'm going to tell you all about the Shakespeare riots. Woohoo! Shakespeare riot! Riot! Yeah, okay, that's all I got. <laughs> Thank you for that. It's one of the saddest and I truly believe the stupidest thing that has ever had Shakespeare's name attached to it. And considering the glorious Hamlet too is in existence with the song, rock, rock me, me, rock me, rock me, rock, rock, rock me, sexy, sexy Jesus. Jesus. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That really should sum up what we're about to get into here. So we all know I'm the darker side of terrible. I, this remains true, even though my story is, like, what the fuckery all over it. It's still the darker side of terrible. 
Yeah, people die in yours. Nobody dies in mine. They come close, but they don't actually die in mine. Yep. In 1849, the theater was the most popular form of entertainment. And popular actors of the time would gather followings in the way that, like, sports teams do today. Folks would travel to see a certain actor in a play, and they would cheer them on with the gusto that only a crowd formed in 1849 social graces would. A much true fact then and today was an actor's true depth could be felt in Shakespeare more than any other because it's desperately difficult to do, as we saw me butchering it in this opening. It quickly exposes one's talent or lack thereof, and when it's done right, the power can leave an audience breathless. Actors and directors have taken Shakespeare and adapted his words for years, making it into their Shakespeare. And like you've heard of people say, did you see so-and-so Shakespeare? And I'm sure you remember the popular adaptation of Romeo and Juliet from the 90s. They named brands of guns, swords, and daggers to fit the storyline for a more modern sense. There was always an adaptation, right? So when the bard jumped the pond, it is not surprising that Edwin Forrest, an American actor, would take the symbol of English literature and give it his entirely American loyalist perspective. Edwin Forrest is known as one of the first true American actors. Theaters had mainly been filled with English actresses and actors, and at that point in America, there were still extremely hard feelings toward the British. Loyalists were still around that were born before America had even gained its independence in 1776. Now, given, not many people remember, but still, they were still around. And as we all know, Americans tend to hold a grudge. It's true now, it was true then, and if we didn't, then our bad guys in movies wouldn't so often have British accents. Along with the harbored loyalist aggression, There was also continued hardships from the influx of the Irish immigrants that were coming into the country. The Irish immigrants, as we have explored in previous episodes, were treated as second-class citizens, and that was the standard. And unfortunately, that still pervades in our society society today with immigrants. They could raise people's children, cook their food, and clean the floors, but they could not join the upper-class society uptown in one of the fancy halls to see a performance of the highest caliber of A Midsummer Night's Dream. That would not mean that the people did not get the opportunity to enjoy Shakespeare's plays, though. It just meant that it was another way that classism was visible in their society. This is something I find rather ironic since the Bard's work historically brought the classes together in his famous theater. Well, Edwin Forrest was a product of his time and location, because even though he longed for recognition on the world stage, he decided that being an asshole was far more important, proving yet again that Americans have embraced assholeism as an art of art form for generations we are kind of dicks that is true yeah yeah do you think that we're like the world's florida oh god we are totally the world's florida we we really really are the world's florida although okay i will say 
that there was, I don't even remember which um, radio station did it, but there was the Florida or Germany, and then there'd be like some insane <laughs> news story. So, I mean, honest to God, Germany, especially, sorry, well, Bavaria, which is like the Florida of Germany, there's some we weird shit goes down in Germany. Absolutely. But yes, I think, I think Yob culture is a thing no matter where you go. I just feel like we, we really embrace it here in a, in a, in a populist kind of way. Nice. All right. Well, that answers my question there. Thank you for that. Because <laughs> every once angry. in a while, oh, I we're going to get angry mail. You are very mean to us from Bavaria. We're going to get you. You suck. Go to hell. Shiza, shiza cops. We're going to get that. It's going to happen. But yeah. You know, what? I'd just be excited to get any mail, even hate mail at this point. I I would just love to hear from one of our listeners outside of the U.S. I, not that I don't enjoy hearing from you all here in the U.S. It really makes our day. Please email us, disturbinginterest at gmail.com. You can reach out to us through Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, however you like. We will respond. Yeah, we will. Hopefully soon. <laughs> Hopefully pretty quickly. Anyway, <laughs> back to back to Shakespeare. Back to back to Americans are dicks, but yes. we also like Shakespeare. Yes, we do. So, on that in on that note, continuing. Continuing. At the time, the greatest Brit the greatest British actor of the generation was a guy named William McCready. And from everything I can find, it really looks like MacReady did not pick this fight. It was all forest. On MacReady's second tour through the United States, Forrest decided to prove that he was the greater actor and a world-class troll by following MacReady through the city and, and performing the exact same plays in the exact same towns. The local papers all participated in fanning the supposed rivalry between the two actors, and of course, they favored Forrest as the local hero in the narrative. Now, the U.S. at this time was a very different place than it is now. Strongly French and Spanish roots in the South, the wild frontier in the West, and the fabled gangs of New York in the North. It was the time that defined the nickname of the melting pot, and a majority of these cultures were not fond of the British. So the local media fanning the fire of an imagined superstar beef amid classism and, historically na and historic nationality grudges was both entirely American and completely ridiculous. You know... The longer we do this show, the more I find myself questioning my feelings about just journalism and the media on a whole. <laughs> Not just yellow journalism, just all of it. <laughs> well, and, just, and the more we do this, the more I'm like, everybody thinks they, you know, invented stuff, right? But yeah. this, this shit could happen absolutely today. Yes. You know? and, and everything we go through in the story, you're like, oh, yeah, that, oh, yep, I can see that. Oh, that's an analog to this. Like, mm -hmm. you know, this is how... This is how we humans do, apparently. This is what we do. Yeah, know? we do stupid. We do stupid. We do stupid real good. Mm -hmm. Anyway, after McCready finished his second tour in America, Forrest decided to do a second tour of England. 
but his decidedly American perspective of Shakespeare in England was met on his second time around with a lukewarm welcome by the British. I just picture him up there in like pumpkin pants and a doublet with like, uh, but like a Rambo style uh, headband and like a gun and be like, yo, you know, as he's like, yo, Juliet. And brrr, that's what I picture the American style of Shakespeare to be, but I might be Fort Sooth, babe. Yep. Yeah. Yo. Yeah. Yeah. Yo, Juliet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's an image right there. Yep. Yep. Anyway, Forrest became convinced that this response to his performance was caused by MacReady. Obviously, MacReady had made some type of move against him to cause the lackluster response from the London audience. I would like to note that I have found nothing that would suggest that MacReady did anything of the sort. However, I also did not do my typical deep dive uh, this go round because, quite frankly, I haven't had the time to read as many books as I normally do. So might there have been something out there that suggests the, to the contrary? Yes. Is it widely known? No. Would I appreciate somebody who knows that emailing me? Absolutely. Forrest, being a well-adjusted fellow who could let a slight go, whether it was imagined or not, decided that he was just going to make his feelings of England's greatest actor at the time clearly known by going to his well-heralded performance of Hamlet and booing and hissing MacReady on stage. You know, I gotta say, I will. I feel like audiences of the past were way more um, likely to tell you how they thought uh, that mm. audiences today in theater are, yes, you know? Yes, the story does go into that a bit more. Yep. Yep, that's right. He turned into a ghost snake right there in Hamlet. And much to his fellow theater girl goers appall, he continued it throughout the entire act. In response, MacReady declared that Forrest was without taste, and that was enough to end Forrest's hope for worldwide acclaim. However, in this story, Forrest has already displayed what a calm, level-headed guy he is, and clearly the type that would accept his embarrassment in England and just turn it into fuel that would silently drive his acting prowess, earning him the recognition that he so des desperately desired. Or he could continue to be a petty troll instead again i feel like that's what we excel at in yes. america petty yes. troll yeah yes oh my god we're the country of trolls you thought that was scandinavia no it's us no it's us yeah. yeah we need more death metal shortly after Forrest's failure in england mccready took his fa farewell tour to new york to the astor palace opera house on broadway now the astor Palace Opera House was still rather new, having only been opened for about two years prior, and the crowd it catered to was known as the most elite in the city. It was a super bougie place. However, it also sat near the Bowery. Shout out to our friends of the show, the Bowery Boys. What's up, guys? And just as a quick overview, the Bowery was the entertainment area for the working class of New York, including the nearby extremely violent Five Points area. 
if the name of the District 5 point sounds familiar, well, then you've probably seen the movie Gangs of New York or just have a knowledge of the area's history. Also, if you haven't seen the movie Gangs of New York, do it. Do it. Because I'm totally, and I think probably because of this movie, like, like kind of, um, it's subliminally gotten to my head. So I'm picturing, uh, I'm picturing Forrest as like, like maybe like a Leo DeCap type. And then I'm picturing Daniel Day-Lewis as McCready. <laughs> Even though he's Irish, right? Is he Irish? Not. Yeah. He's I, his own. Now he's going to be mad. But yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Us accidentally casting him. Okay. No, I'm, totally I'm striking, striking him from mad. my mind. Now I'm making him Kenneth Branagh. There you go. Kenneth there Branagh. All right. Seems um, slightly dicky anyway. So, yeah, he could be all McCready. And then um, who are we going to cast as the American Shakespearean actor? Hmm. Trying to think who would be a good one. Because, uh, like, I'm trying to think, like, who is our, like, hothead American I'm actor man kind of dude? Like, I just kind of want it to be Leo. Or not Leo. Um, uh, God, I just blanked on his name. Why did I blank on his name? Is this what a stroke is? I, this is just called We're Old and Tired. Oh, uh, that We're might very, be very, very old. You're a geriatric millennial. Yeah. Which would make me, like, as a Gen Xer, like the lich queen, I think. I'm the <laughs> actual undead if you're a geriatric millennial. Oh, my God. Okay. Going back into it. All right. Okay. No, Sylvester anyway. Stallone. He's Sylvester Stallone to me. Yo, Juliet. Yes. There yes. you go. There okay. we go. All right. Anyway. The Bowery, or the five points. It was a disease-addled area, poverty-laced, where the majority of people were criminals because that was the only way they could exist. The conditions were absolutely deplorable. The neighborhood survived for about 70 years before being cleaned up. People were just piled on top of each other. Um, The story of the five points really could take up a whole episode. Several even. Yeah. Yeah. From the poor landfill foundation being being the cause of mosquitoes and therefore the disease or about the notorious gangs of New York riots that happened uh, just eight years after this story happened. So if you know anything about those, that'll kind of give you the idea of what the area environment was that they were in. And I can promise you that if I ever do cover the five points, I will not do Daniel Day-Lewis's performance in the movie the slightest bit of justice. Darn. I was hoping you would just go full Daniel Day on this one. You would immerse yourself. You become a method actor. You'd like, you know, j- drink cheap grog and like stab people. I was kind of hoping for that. I was Dude, method that. actors scare yeah. me. Oh they, God, the- I'm just sort of like, guys, it's acting. You don't have to be that guy. That's why it's acting, not being. Uh, but yeah, and I feel like own. I feel like this is just again everything old is new again. Uh, gee, America bad at poverty gee america bad at inequality gee america bad at treating immigrants well nah yeah 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 that's it we always (sighs) we're just talking about it again anyway in fact there were a lot of riots in new york in this like 20 year time frame period in that area that we're talking about It, it it was so frequent they had their own militia and when Forrest announced that he would be playing Mac, you know, who's it in the Bowery for the working class crowd that adored him while McCready was going to play Mac, you know, who's it for the upper cra- class 
upper class crowd, the papers picked the story up again. And I don't think he thought he was going to start a class war with this. But he did. Because on May 7th, 1849, McCready stepped out on stage to find that somehow Forrest's supporters had managed to buy out the entire upper floor of the Astor. Of course, they watched the play and made a civil critique of the difference in performance. The end. Because that's how our stories always go. Oh, yes. Americans. So understated. So classy. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. No, instead, they hurled rotten eggs, fruit, veg, and by some accounts, half of a sheep's carcass from one of the five point slaughterhouses onto the stage at McCready. I'm just impressed that they got all of that shit into the theater. Same, like, right? Like, what, did they have like a wheelbarrow that they just pushed up to the loge? Well, That's they had kind to of get a, yeah. people too. Yeah. Like, how do you do that anyway? Can you imagine trying to give like your farewell performance on Broadway and you get pelted with a sheep carcass? Yeah, I think that would uh, that would put a damper on my performance just a little bit. Uh, I suppose that's where the old theater term "break a sheep's carcass" comes from. Yeah, must must be must mm. be. The crowd was so rude and boisterous that no one could hear the actors over the jeering. But being the constant, being the constant professionals, they chose to pantomime rather than to shut down the show, because after all, the sheep's carcass must go on, or something like that. At the same time, Forrest was being heralded for his performance. McCready was, of course, horrified by the reception, but was begged by several well-known elite members of the what is known as the Upper Tens, a term that was referenced, uh, reference for the wealthiest 10,000 people in the city to finish so his So like the 1%? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it was. Everything old is new again. Yep, nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. They ensured him that there would be no other disruptions. They would keep the sanctity of his performance intact. And they tried. They really, really tried. They gathered the state's 350-man 7th Regiment in Washington Square Park, which was made up of mounted troops, artillery, and hussars. I'm not sure what a hussar is. I'm... I, I'm going to be looking that up later. A hussar. Okay. A hussar. I've heard the name before, but I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Anyway, but they were added to the oh. 100. Oh. Yeah, I just quickly looked it up, and it is. So historically, it was a Hungarian light horseman or a soldier in a light cavalry regiment that had adopted I... a dress uniform modeled on that of the Hungarian hussars. I so... knew that. Yeah. So like the I mounted police. Yeah. The mounties. The mounties kind kind of. Yes. I knew that. Ugh. I'm I'm so disappointed in myself for not remembering. Anyway. That's okay. There's you look, the my brain is full most days. I feel you. Hmm. Yeah. My my brain's had it. So they were added to the 100 policemen outside of the theater and 150 policemen inside of the theater. Wow. Yeah. On top of that, they had another group of policemen stationed in the wealthy housing districts. 
because of course they did. Well, yeah, you got to protect wealthy people's property. I thought that was the whole point of policing. Hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately for those cops and militia, though, Isaiah Ridner's a forest supporter. In fact, he was the one who backed the original carcass tossing fiasco, used his powers in the pursuit of fuckery yet again, and began gathering a mob. So this is the guy who was the financial backer of the first one. Gotcha. Yeah. He invited everyone who wanted to go to the show and show the English that they would not rule their American city to accept a free ticket to McCready's performance. Much to the horror of everyone guarding the performance hall, 10,000 people decided to take up his offer and storm the theater. Oh, Jesus. Mainly these people were just pissed at the classism, but sure, Shakespeare. Yeah, That's why not? a good reason to motivate violence. Sure. Yeah. McCready managed to put on a full performance one more time before being snuck out the back in disguise and whisked away from the scene. However, as the people continued to riot, throwing stones, bricks, the policemen did what police have so often done and answered stone throwing with gunfire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they brought guns to a stone fight. When all was said and done, 70 policemen, 141 militia, and countless civilians were injured. Why were the civilians countless? Well, because nobody bothered to count them. Sure, they don't count. Yeah. Uh Aha. Yeah. In fact, the authorities could not even find the time to get an accurate number of the total killed. That's right. Somewhere between 22 and 31 civilians died that day. Boy. Were they rioting? Yes. Was it stupid? Also, yes. Were they looking for a way to make the upper Ecleon that did not care about them in the slightest sit up and notice the horror that they were dying in daily? Also, yes. Astor Opera House ended up closing after being unable to shake the nicknames of Massacre Opera House and Disaster Palace. Wow. Yeah, and it had just been open, too. But I can absolutely see that people would be like, no. Yeah, I don't really want to go to, you know, I don't want to go to the Murder Opera House. Thanks. No, Mm -hmm. thanks. Yep. Forrest continued acting for the rest of his life and eventually died of a stroke at and. At an old age, McCready, on the other hand, led a very successful life before the Astor Riots. In fact, the Astor Riots are little more than a cliff note in the information that is out there on McCready's life. Seriously, it's a freaking cliff note. He completed his farewell tour and gave his last performance on Drury Lane in 1851. He married a 23-year-old at 67 because sugar daddies and died in Chetlaham on on April 27th, 1873. So what's the moral of the story? Egos are fragile and upper tens won't care unless you make them? Shakespeare is best left out of the hands of trolls? Or maybe it's just as simple as the show must go on sheep carcass or not wow that was me standing 
Bravo, bravo, encore, encore. I thought that was very, very well done. Thank you. I, I well hope done. you enjoyed. I hope I you all enjoyed that one. Sheep and, carcass and yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. So this episode's probably going to run a little long, folks. I'm watching our time now, but we'll see how it goes. Okay. Lynn, mine is not wildly. You. Yeah, mine is not uh, wildly, wildly long. Okay, so we're going from one form of popular entertainment, the theater, to another, sports. That's right, I'm going to talk about sports, which I don't ever care about, even a little bit. But this story, when I heard it, I was like, the fuck? Like, seriously, this, this shit, oh my, oh my God. So let me just get into it. So perhaps you've noticed that sports scandals seem to be in the headlines quite a lot these days. They are. Things like with Japan insisting on holding the rescheduled 2020 Olympics this summer, despite the fact that, you know, coronavirus is kind of a raging problem and everybody there is quitting because they don't want to die. You know, that mm-hmm. little bit. You know, recently tennis champion Naomi Osaka forfeited her spot in a major tennis tournament because having to deal with talking to the racist, sexist press pretty much crushes this poor woman's spirit daily. Wow. Or a Kentucky Derby winner, Medina Spirit, failing a drug test for horse performance enhancers. Take that, cocaine bear. We have dope horse on this podcast. Or uh, the absolute fucking horror of 21 ultra marathoners in a race in China actually fucking dying from inclement weather conditions. So I reckon this particular story would be timely. And so I will then tell you the the just completely wackadoodle-doo story of possibly the most absurd race that was ever run in modern history, the 1904 Olympic Men's Marathon. This story, well, it has, it literally, it has everything. Seriously. This, this shit is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Banana and pants. Return it, of the banana pants. It is. And you know what? Nobody dies. They come close. They sure come close. Multiple people are probably maimed and traumatized for life, but nobody dies for a change in this story. That's uh, So this is, this is what passes for feel good. A feel good story for us. So you're welcome. <laughs> So, first of all, the 1904 Olympics in general is, oh boy, oof, where do I even start? So, it was originally supposed to be hosted in Chicago, but at that same time, the year's World's Fair was going to be going on in St. Louis, and it would be stealing all of the big turn-of-the-century thunder. So, organizers decided to just pull a, pull a twofer, basically, and hold the Olympics in St. Louis as well, at the same time. And ooh, Papa Tootie was the St. Louis World's Fair something. A big, weird, creepy, racist something. It was a giant celebration of the centennial of the Louisiana Purchase, and it was essentially all about how freaking cool American imperialism was. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, and it had its own absolutely grotesque version of sporting spectacle in the form of the Anthropology Days, which, at first glance, you might imagine is like an arm wrestling contest between Margaret Mead and Jane Goodall, but it was nothing that wholesome. No, indeed. So, the World's Fair had constructed a number of replicas of what the white guy organizers imagined were the native villages of a bunch of people from various indigenous groups around the world. And yeah. And so they had these folks come and basically paid them to hang out in there. 
and they build these people as savages. Now, these are their words and ideas, gentle listeners, not ours. So, uh, can you bun- hear me rolling Ugh. my eyes? And essentially, what it was is a bunch of people from various indigenous groups from around the world got to hang out like they were in a fucking people zoo so that corn-fed Caucasian Americans could gawk at them. Nice. And and then further to add insult to injury, Anthropology Days was a sporting event billed as a special Olympics to be held concurrently alongside the regular Olympics. Now, do not confuse this with today's special Olympics I by any means. Ask. And it wasn't even the Paralympics like we would have today. No, this was some upside down black mirror horror universe version of the Olympics in which the primitive men of the savage cultures that were on display there were tasked with competing in both standard Western Olympic style track and field events, as well as staged savage friendly events like archery contests, competitive tree climbing and mud throwing. (sighs) Yeah. So yeah. And this went about as well as you might imagine it would. Mercifully, the visiting indigenous peoples were at least paid to perform these ridiculous feats, and they half-assed it, which, frankly, was a butt-cheek more than this grotesque racist farce deserved. Yeah. Yeah. So, few spectators came to see it, because I think even then they were embarrassed by this shit, and the games were considered a total failure, and... Thank God, no Never further took yeah. place again. No, no further shitbird shenanigans like them were attempted at subsequent World's Fairs. So, you know, a tiny silver lining to that particular bullshit. So, even the regular Olympic Games were overshadowed by the fair, however, and failed to attract the participation of a large number of countries that year. The marathon was only in its third appearance as part of the Games. Very few significant runners who had done well in other, better established marathons of the time signed up, and at the starting tape, there were only 32 athletes total, representing only four nations officially, with the majority made up of Americans. Notably, this was the first Olympic competition to involve athletes from the continent of Africa, and even that is way more bizarre than you'd think it probably should be. So, as part of the World's Fair, 600 veterans of the Boer War, say that twice, Boer War. I didn't say it once. Right. They had come over to reenact the battles that they had fought with one another. And two of those reenactors, both men from the Swana tribe of South Africa, decided, what the fuck? Let's just run this stupid ass race. Let's do it. And one of them actually appears to have done it shoeless. And as wow. you know, if you were if you follow runners today, that is something that like in in the more recent times, people have sort of looked at and said, "Oh wow, this is actually maybe a good way to do it." So mm-hmm. you know, this guy is a he's a he's a a, a forerunner, if you will. Yes. But then one of the men that was running from from uh, Africa actually got chased off course for a mile by a small pack of wild dogs what at one fuck? point in the race. because <laughs> And that's the least weird thing that happened. That is the least weird thing that happened. Yeah. So let's talk about this course, shall we? 
it was 24.85 miles of dirt roads that were just choked with many, many inches of red dust that the runners would have to plod through and breathe in as they ran. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. The course wound over seven hills that varied in elevation from 100 to 300 feet high. Runners also would have to dodge crosstown traffic, delivery trucks and horse-drawn wagons, and even a freaking railroad train. And there were only two water sources along the entire course. Oh, my God. Yeah, a water tower at six miles in and a well at 12 miles. And unlike today's marathons, there were not water stations along the course, although there were some aid cars that would be following the runners if they needed assistance. And thank God for that, or at least one of the athletes would have absolutely died. So why, you might ask, were they so stingy with the water? Mm-hmm. As it would kind of seem that even over a hundred years ago, people would be pretty aware that the human body needs a fuck ton of hydration to function well while doing things like running, right? Yeah. Well, there's a reason for that, and it's terrible. Oh, That's God. because James Sullivan, the chief organizer of the games, wanted to test the effects of dehydration <gasps> and limited fluid intake on the athletes. Oh my God, what? Yep. yep. Spoiler alert, it kind of sucks. Well, for science, man. Now, none of the participants were aware of this fun Coach Mengele bullshit. Was he a scientist in any way, shape, or form? Kind of. He fancied himself as one. So, no. You could just say you were a scientist. Like, yeah, I'm studying some shit, and you were then. Yeah. And none of these folks, none of the runners consented to it. Because they didn't even know about it. Also, what the fuck is consent? This is 1904. We don't have consent. That hasn't been invented yet. Whatever. And to top it all off, just because, you know, we need we need to ratchet this shit up just a little more. The weather that day was insanely hot, with the cooler early morning start temperature already hitting 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So this is all, as you can tell, going to be a perfect recipe for athletic su- success, right? Yep. And then there were the participants. As I said, most of the runners were homegrown from the good old U.S. of A., and they were the favorites to win. We'll start with American Fred Lors, who did all his training at night because he was a bricklayer by day. Or maybe he was a vampire. I don't, I don't know his life. He might have so, been a vampire. Yeah, Vampires like to run. Sure. Now, remember this guy, because he's going to be important to our story later. Then there was William Garcia, another American runner from California, who nearly became the first Olympic athlete to actually fucking die in the course of the games when he collapsed on the side of the road after all the dust that had been kicked up by the runners and the aid cars choked this man's esophagus, shredding both it and his stomach lining and causing this man internal bleeding. Had one of Yeah, he's literally like lying there on the side of the road hacking up blood. And if one of the eight car passengers not spotted him, just sprawled out there in the dust on the side of the road, hacking up his lungs, and if he'd gone even another hour tops like that, he would have absolutely died. So happily, they were able to rescue him, get him medical attention, but he never competed again. So, yeah, I wouldn't. I'd be like, I'm done with this. I'm going to take up, like, I don't know, knitting. So other runners. Yeah, there you go. Other runners gave up early on as well after the heat and dehydration and, you know, wild dogs and shit caused fits of vomiting and cramping. Uh, 
And in the end, only 14 of the 32 starters actually finished the race, which also had just about, as you can imagine, the worst finishing time of any of the recorded modern Olympic marathons. Uh-huh. And then there were, of course, the two South African runners, Len Tao and John Masciani, who both actually managed to make it across the finish line in ninth and 12th place, wild dog chasing be damned. And wow. my personal favorite competitor, Senor Felix Carvajal from Cuba, the first person from that island nation to compete in the games. But it wasn't the government that funded his trip to St. Louis. Nope, old Felix, who had no previous training as a runner, was a mailman in Cuba who just decided that he wanted to compete in the Olympic marathon, by gosh. And he started fundraising for his passage to the U.S. by basically jogging his way across Cuba to raise money from the locals. Can you imagine being just deciding to compete in the Olympics? The time you live in, you can just decide, you know what, I'm competing in the Olympics. I'm going to run that race. Yeah, I'm, I'm going in there. Just, you know, give me a ticket. I'll be there. Yeah, you could apparently do that. So Felix basically made enough money to cover his steamship passage to the U.S., but then he lost what money remained to him from this fundraising jog in a card game at the Port of New Orleans right after he arrived. This is a guy that makes great life choices, let me just say. And what he lacked in good... As somebody from New Orleans, don't ever play cards in New Orleans. That doesn't seem wise. So what he lacked in good judgment, Felix sure made up for in dogged idiot determination, though, and he ran and hitchhiked his way to St. Louis, arriving pretty much right before the start of the race. And if you look at photos of the competitors at the starting line, you will see that marathon running attire of that time looked not dissimilar to the running gear we would wear today. Shorts, a sleeveless tank top with numbers on it, and sneakers that pretty much look like Converse. Like, you we know. should post a picture to our social media. I, I will. There is a great photo of him, so I'll put that up uh, to our our various facey spaces and things. But Felix, however, shows up in a white long sleeve button-down shirt, work pants, <laughs> long johns, a leather belt, and a jaunty little cap and work boots because that's literally all this man owns at this point. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Felix. one of his, Yeah, he's not... I mean, A for effort, though, sir. A for effort. So one of his fellow competitors basically takes pity on this guy and takes a pair of shears to to his pants and cuts them off at the knees. So, you know, he's sort of running in cut-off collots and and long johns, as as you do. And the fun does not stop there with our pal Felix. Oh, hell no. So he is living his best life on this race course. He's stopping periodically to just shoot the breeze with bystanders in Spanish, including asking a passing car full of people who were snacking on a basket of peaches hence my delicious white peach wine, ah. uh, if he could have some of those peaches. Millions of peaches, peaches for me, he says. And when they refused... Peaches for free? He, peaches for free. That's what he was asking for. And when they refused, he snatched two of them from the basket that was in the back and just kept running on, cackling with glee. And then later... Peaches he, for free. Yeah, truly. Um, and so he even stopped. Peaches come from a can. They were put there by a man running in Long John's down St. Louis. But yeah, so he then later, because he's he's a snacking kind of guy, uh, stopped at an apple orchard that was further down <laughs> the course. And yeah, 
just started chowing down, you know, and a few of the apples that had fallen off the trees, which unfortunately turned out to be rotten. Oh, Jesus. And this delayed his progress while he laid down to cope with stomach cramps. Now, (laughs) miraculously, he actually crossed the finish line in fourth place. (laughs) And he might even have won this whole thing if he hadn't stopped to chit-chat and have little peachy snacks along the way. Well, I mean, maybe if he he would have won if he just didn't have the apples. Right? So to me, he is first place simply because of style points, to be honest. Well done. Well done, Felix. You are the winner of our hearts. He's Mr. Congeniality of this race. Yes, he is. So he's, he's an inspiration to us all. And let's go back to Fred Lors, the possible vampire runner, who was the actual first place finisher. Or was he? Oh. Yeah. So, dun, 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 since this is such a straightforward competition. So, Lors had actually initially dropped out of the race after nine miles when excruciating cramps uh, cramped his style. So he hitched. Did he too eat apples? I think it was just the dehydration and 90-degree heat Oh, in this guy's case. Um, so he hitched a ride back to the stadium in a car, which itself broke down at about oh mile God. 19. Yeah, this is just, this is the saddest race ever. Now, at this point, he's recovered from his earlier cramps, and he proceeded to jog the last six miles, being the first to actually re-enter the stadium and cross the finish line. But he also got a car ride. (laughs) That is correct. Because, again, this is well before modern communications made it possible to know the play-by-play action along the course. Nobody in the stadium was aware that he'd been riding dirty in a car for a goodly chunk of the race. And he was hailed as the winner. And just as they were about to drape the gold medal around his neck and he was going to get a kiss on the cheek from Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, Alice, who, again, that woman could be a whole episode in herself because she's fascinating. True. Yes. And it was suddenly revealed that he was a total cheat. So Liar. pretty Yeah. So pretty much like the end of Star Wars with Princess Leia giving out the medals, but if someone ran in and was like, Luke actually did not switch off his targeting computer and just lied about the Death Star being destroyed. So it's like that. Lore's claims he was gonna tell him honest, but he wanted to go along with it as a joke. Oh but right. yeah, but the Olympic Committee was like, I don't think so. Good joke. And they yeah. They were big mad, and they banned him for a year from running. Now, he did go on to win the Boston Marathon next year in 1905 on his own steam, no cars involved. But wait, the nuttiest part is still to come. Oh, Lord. Yeah, it it gets weirder. So another American runner, Thomas Hicks, actually had been dutifully racing and chasing and plotting the course, but about 10 miles from the end, he was so sick from dehydration that he wanted to lie down and stop running. But his coaches decided to be all Medina spirit on him and give him a little bump of performance enhancing drugs. Of course they did. Of course they did. And back in 1904, that meant strychnine. <gasps> strychnine. No. Yes, the poison strychnine, like rat poison strychnine. I mean, come on. This is the era of cocaine and soft drinks and radium and toothpaste. So why the fuck not, right? Yeah. So strychnine causes nervous system stimulation, which in large enough doses will kill you. But in just teeny tiny little micro doses, kind of basically peps you up. 
by making you essentially cramp and twitch your way forward. Oh. Yeah. So Hicks begged his coaches for water, but because, again, these are awful people, they didn't give him any. They did instead sponge his mouth out with warm distilled water and gave him that little bump of strychnine that they had mixed with egg whites because fuck if I know. I don't know. Egg whites. Sure, why not? Let's just make this grosser. So this was enough to get poor old Hicks up and moving a little bit. But then when word came to him about two miles from the finish line that Lors had won, he was like, okay, fuck this. I give up. But then almost as quickly, word came back to him that, in fact, Lors' little hitchhiker stunt had been revealed and that Lors had been disqualified and the race was still anyone's to win. So his trainers poured yet more strychnine egg white omelet, a.k.a. the Denny's Grand Slam from hell, down his throat. This time, it gets worse with a brandy chaser for a good how-are-you-not-dead measure. Yep. And essentially frog-marched this poor bastard, supporting his ashen gray frame on both sides as he twitched and staggered his way across the finish line, becoming the actual winner of the 1904 What the Fuck Olympic Marathon. Hicks had to be physically carried off the track and was immediately treated by four doctors who said if they hadn't been there, this poor dude would quite likely have died. So over the course of the marathon, Hicks had lost eight pounds of water from his body. And again, this is a marathon runner, so he's not exactly Chonky McBeefcake, right? So happily, Hicks did recover and was eventually able to leave the stadium uh, of his own cognizance in about an hour. And he even returned to racing, facing off against Cheater Man Lors the next year at the Boston Marathon, in which he actually lost legitimately to Lors. And this, my friends, is why I avoid sports, except curling, because that shit is bomb. And that is the insane story of the 1904 Olympic marathon. Holy shit, man. That was I know. a wild ride. It's like if sports were all like this, I might be into sports, you know, maybe a little bit. I like baseball. But I do like baseball. I like the uh, Everett Aqua Sox minor league baseball team. Nice. Up in Everett, it's very pastoral, and they make the mostly. I'm there because they make children do absurd and embarrassing things between the innings for our delight. Nice. Yeah, that's the whole reason to go to anything. In my and opinion. and it's like eight bucks. It's, it's super cheap. So awesome. And awesome. Will can get a hot dog, which makes him very happy. So <laughs> he's he's in it for the hot dogs. And I'm like, hey, I guess this is we could go to stuff like that because it's all outdoors, right? You know. I'm still not ready to Maybe? be in a crowd that big. Yeah, I mean, unless they have a vaccinated section. I, yeah, no, just yeah. in general. Yeah. I, yeah. I am going to go back into, uh, see. I'm going to go see an actual movie. But yes. with the twist, and, and you, you are maybe going to come too. Yes, I need to check with uh, Mr. Mao as soon as we get done recording to see if he has anything on his schedule because if not we are going to come too because this so, is exciting. This is this is the wacky. So uh during the uh the Great Panini, which frankly guys, it's still going on. Yeah. Everybody like it's over. I'm like it's not no. over. Have you people not ever watched a horror movie? Oh, Jason fell in the lake. It's done. No, no, he lives in the lake. He's got a snorkel. He's fine. He's going to come back and stab you when you least expect it. That is what this pandemic is like. So don't stay on your guard, people. But that said, we have a, a we had a Friday night Fright Nighters group that would watch 
double features of horror movies that had something to do with each other. And we would, we just basically go on messenger and trash talk the movies, press play at the same time. And we've turned kind of into like a weird online support group throughout all of this. Right. And in fact, two of the members who had never met prior to this thing met virtually online. They both live in the same city down in Portland and they fell in love. Which is adorable. It's adorable. Oh my goodness. What was that? My computer just made a weird noise. But yeah, so anyway, this is like, this has been a big thing that we do, right? And as a result, we decided that we were going to, once the great Panini was at least at a point where we felt safe to do this, we were going to see if we could rent uh, Central Cinema, which is this small, it's not even like a second run movie theater. It's like a weird movie theater pub passion project that a couple in Seattle has put together and it's delightful. And uh, it's not open yet to the public to show films, but you can rent it privately. And so we all pooled, we checked the couch cushions for change and we pooled our money and uh, we were renting it a couple Fridays hence to watch the original Fright Night. And um, cause we're all vaccinated, but I think we'll probably still be masked up cause you don't know, you know, just be safe. It's just a couple of hours, you can wear a mask. And uh, we're going to just hoot and holler and hang out in person, probably like six feet away from each other still, but in person in a movie theater. And it's going to be awesome. Yes, it's very exciting. And all of these people think that I am just a disembodied voice. Yeah, they don't believe you exist. I don't really exist because it seems like I'm just always busy or dead on Fridays. So It's Lynn's imaginary friend. She's Mm -hmm. real. She's real and she's fabulous. She met me in camp. Yeah. Yes. There. She's in my. Canada. She's my podcast partner from Canada. That's right. Yeah. But am, yeah, there, we're actually gonna boys. see each other in person. We're gonna whoop it up and watch. Uh, we're gonna be all "You're so cool, Brewster!" together. It's gonna be. It's gonna be magic. Glorious. Glorious. Yes. I mean, maybe we'll even record a little something if we can figure it out for the podcast while we're there. Oh, we might. We may just have everybody give you all a shout out. Yeah. Because. Um, you- Part of these people are you all. So, hey, welcome to the cast. Yeah, that's like 30% of our audience, as far as I can tell. (laughs) And my mom. No, not even my mom. My mom's like, I don't listen to podcasts. That's weird. So, yeah. Oh, I love it. And it's not like Barry can do technology. Barry is never going to do this. No. No. Barry is the dad from the Millers versus the Machines. So Yes, he is. And that is a great movie if you haven't seen it. Oh, it's charming. On that note, thank you so much for a great story this week. And, and thank uh, you. That was super fun. Oh, I, a, I had a blast a with it. Horrible death filled sort of way. Yeah. That is my my milieu right there. It, it is. Really is. Yeah. 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 Anyway, you all take care of each other. And remember, you might be disturbed. But, but you haven't been pelted by a cheap carcass or fed a strychnine egg white omelet, I hope. And you're not alone. Thank you for listening, friends. Remember, if you would like to reach out to us, you can find us on Facebook at The Disturbing Interest Podcast, Twitter at podcast underscore DI, Instagram at DI Podcast. You can find us online at disturbinginterest.com, or you can email us at disturbinginterest at gmail.com. Our P.O. Box is 70515, Seattle, Washington, 98127. Remember to rate, like, and tell your friends, and we'll talk at you soon.